0: by the Creation Academy, an apologetics learning experience designed to teach, train, and inspire others to become strong defenders of the Creation account presented in the Bible. Primarily, the Academy offers video and audio courses with downloadable PDF workbooks taught by a team of experienced creation researchers. But members of our exclusive Creation All Access program will also have access to expert interviews and Q&A sessions with creation scientists and apologists, all inside a private Facebook group where you'll fellowship and interact with a like-minded community of believers. We're excited to announce that enrollment is now open. The Academy does not officially launch until March 2019, but until then, you can get into Creation All Access for just $7 per month while we're adding new course material. Join today by going to www.creationcourses.com and clicking on Enroll Now. Alright, you're listening to The Steve Schramm Show a weekly podcast training up uh, Christians to become confident and passionate servants of Jesus so that they can grow in their walk with God and share their faith more persuasively. We hope that's you. Are you a Christian? Uh, Do you want to become a confident, passionate servant of Jesus? Uh, Or do you just want to be here in 2019, another spiritually apathetic, um, biblically, theologically weak Christian. You know, you could do that. I mean, you could you could go ahead throughout this year, just like every other year has been, and slack up on your Bible reading, slack up on your prayer time, and slack up on developing, slack up on um, witnessing and sharing the gospel news with others. Or you could dive into something more meaningful. You could Uh, Really get out there and start learning more about your convictions such that you can share them in a way that is persuasive with, uh, let's face it, with a world who wants nothing to hear of the gospel. They, They just don't want to hear it. And so we need to uh, overcome that barrier in this day of spiritual apathy in ourselves but also in the culture. And the only way we can do that is to start on the inside. So I'm glad you're here. That's a great step towards making that happen. Well, have you ever been stumped by the distant starlight issue? Now you're a Young earth creationist, possibly, if you listen to this. Not necessarily, uh, but but perhaps you are. That's the conviction here at our ministry is uh, young uh, earth, or more precisely, young age creationism. And so, uh, it's likely, if that's the case, that in the past you've been stumped by the distant starlight issue. Of course, the distant starlight issue is just, uh, you know, we see stars that are millions of light years away, uh, and so it would take uh, forever to... (laughs) <laughs> to travel to some of these places. Uh, and so this is seen as a property, not only of distance, but in their eyes, it's a property of time. And so they say that the only way that we have the universe we do is if there's been millions and millions of years of time that has elapsed. And of course, our conviction here is that the Bible teaches that only approximately 6,000 years have gone by since the beginning of the creation. And so that's a very Uh, that's very counter to the mainstream cultural understanding today. Uh, But nevertheless, that is our conviction. And so the question for us is, can we uh, make any sense of that scientifically? Do we have a leg to stand on scientifically? If you joined us last week in episode uh, number 72, then uh, you heard us mention a solution to this problem, the distant starlight uh, problem. A brand new solution has come out um, called Creation Time Coordinates, and we spent a little over an hour last week laying that out for you, the beginnings of it, and our discussion today is going to continue that. We're going to continue talking about uh, that particular uh, new model and give you some further thoughts on it. We're still going through the paper that was submitted, if you recall from last week, uh, that where this model was presented at the International Conference on creationism in July of 2018. So we are talking about that today uh, and uh, really excited to dive in to that. Hey, don't forget to go ahead and download this week's freebie. It's a free lesson handout that you're getting and you can get it directly by going to steveshram.com slash starlightdownload steveshram.com starlight download If you uh, don't want to get it there, you can just go to our show notes. There will be a link to it right there in our show notes. Uh, also, a box in our show notes where you can just enter your name and email address, and we'll send it to you, but if you want to go to the download directly, it is steveshram.com slash stevesham.com/slash/starlight-download. where you're going to get my five-step response to the distant starlight issue. That's the handout I'm giving you this week and last week. It's just a real practical guide, a five-step responds laid out in a nice PDF that will help you respond to the distant starlight issue when challenges, uh, excuse me, when challengers uh, raise it. Uh, I mentioned when we started doing these lesson handouts that I want them to be uh, uh, such that we can give you a practical tool to help you deal with whatever the topic of the show is. A lot of times we discuss things in the show that are a little more... Um, I- I- theological, but I don't want to say theological in in a way that is you know ungraspable. I just mean that we're talking more about the ideas in many cases than we are the application. And that's always been the case here on the podcast. So I want to be able to make sure that I'm helping you with the application side of it, or else um, it's harder to to use the information that you have. Uh, when presenting it to others, so I hope this handout helps you. My five-step response to the distant starlight issue—you can get it by going to stevesram.com/starlight/download, and it's completely free. So go ahead and grab that, so you can dive into that after you are done listening to this lesson. So for now, let's go ahead and dive in. We're going to pick up where we left off. So in last week's lesson, we presented a, a, a basic, you know, overview of what this new model. Uh, was and we kind of gave you the building blocks that it was built on. We also got pretty in depth into the actual nature of the solution, some of the physics. Uh, that are involved. We won't rehash all of that. If you're interested in that, which I highly encourage you, if you've not heard that episode, to go listen to that one first. That is 072. Uh, Don't worry, I will be here when you get back. So that's lesson 072, uh, this last week's lesson. And so I'll be here when you get back. And uh, if you're back, here we are. So what we're going to do is continue on in the paper that Uh, was presented. And the next section that we find in the paper is the evidence for a young cosmos. The evidence in a young cosmos. So if you'll remember, this is one of the building blocks that we talked about um, last week. And I actually said, look, we're going to be talking about this later. So I skipped over it. But I did make mention that evidence for a young cosmos is one of the building blocks that goes into the creation-time coordinates model. And so these building blocks, uh, or excuse me, this evidence is of a, a, a biblical nature. It's also evidence of a scientific nature. And the authors uh, here in the study, they keep this part fairly brief, uh, because obviously there's tons of other evidence for a young uh Cosmos. So, um, I mean, they couldn't possibly discuss everything in here. So, we talk about the biblical evidence. We talk about the uh, evidence for our galaxy being young, and then there's a little bit of evidence that talks about the youth of a distant cosmos. So, if you uh, want to know more about that, then what you need to do is go check out lesson number fifty-eight. Now, this is back from when the show was titled the Creation Academy. So, it's TCA lesson zero five eight. The Current State of Creation Astronomy 2. The Current State of Creation Astronomy 2, and the 2 is, uh, it looks like two capital I's, uh, is how that was represented in there. So um, just, uh, you could search the website for Lesson 58 or in your favorite podcast feed, favorite podcast player, you can find Lesson 58. And there we talked about uh, more of the evidence for a uh, youthful uh, universe, And it was done in the context of a state of um, uh, creation astronomy, okay? It was basically uh, just an overview of where we are as of 2018 with respect to Uh, creation astronomy. And so that's a really good overview there. So again, we're going to look at these three different pieces of evidence here. A little bit of biblical evidence, a little bit of evidence for a young galaxy, and a little bit of evidence for the distant cosmos. But remember, there's a lot more of this to be found in Lesson 58 and also in other places. All right. So first, we have the biblical evidence. The authors note something quite interesting about Exodus 20 verse 11. Okay, now let me give you a little bit more context for this biblical evidence. Last week we mentioned in passing that there was some scripture that seems to indicate that the cosmos as well as the earth are young. So you'll remember we, uh, 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 Talked a little bit, and we're going to talk much more about um, Dr. Russell Humphrey's uh, m- a model. We talked about it a little bit last week, going to talk about it much more in depth today. About Russ Humphreys' model of gravitational time dilation, and uh, Russ Humphreys actually has submitted some evidence as of 2017 that he thinks uh, the Bible shows that there is warrant for an ancient, um, in the sense of even possibly a billions of years old universe, even though only the Earth is young, and of course. The, the way that the time dilation, uh, you know, takes effect there, uh, matters. And many young Earth creationists also hold to this technically old universe model. It's a very, very common. Now, I don't personally hold to that. It's my conviction that the age of the cosmos is also only around 6,000 years old. And so... Uh, you know, we're going to need a, a pretty robust way of understanding starlight in order to be able to get around that particular problem, okay? Now, I, so I, so that's my conviction. And here's one reason I think that, and I'm glad the authors brought this up. It's really interesting. So let me read Exodus 20 and verse 11 to you. You probably already know it, but I'm going to read it anyway. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that in them is and rested the seventh day. Wherefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day, and hallowed it. Now here's what the authors say, quote, Unless the meaning of day in relation to earth is different from the meaning of day in relation to heaven, one must conclude that heaven and all there is in it experienced only six days since uh, creation only six days of time since creation. Close quote. Now, that's really interesting. Now, the, the, the heaven and earth, uh, that represents kind of a, um, a, a merism in speech. And basically what that means, it is a, something where the two extremes uh, of uh, two con- constituent parts are, are are contrasted in order to represent the whole. In other words... Um, there is no word for the universe in biblical Hebrew. So whenever the Bible seems to be talking about the entire universe, then it seems to use this phrase, heaven and earth or the earth and the heavens, um, something like that. Now what the authors point out is this little phrase, and all that in them is. So this is really, really different, um, and interesting, because it's, it's extending it further, it's not using just the figure of speech that we would associate with the Marism. It's specifically saying that everything in this uh, conglomerate that today we know is the universe experienced only six days of time. This seems to be a direct claim um, that the cosmos are not billions of years old even if earth has only experienced six days um uh, had only experienced six days of time uh by the end of creation week so this would in fact seem to cause difficulty for views that rely on time dilation now um Again, the the authors go into that a lot more uh, in the paper. Uh, We're going to table that discussion for now. We are going to talk a little bit more about Humphrey's model in a moment, though, so just hang with me. Stay here. Okay, the authors also note, quote, Since God created the stars to be... For signs and for seasons and for days and for years, in Genesis 1.14, it is reasonable to expect that the first light of the newly created stars arrived in time to be visible by the first human couple. This first light would have carried youthful images of the stars only a day or so in age. In the absence of significant time dilation effects, stars would continue to age at about the same rate as Earth, and be only a few thousand years old today. Now, this seems true. Uh, It seems to be the most parsimonious explanation, Uh, in other words, uh, the simplest, the the clearest, and it seems to also uh, work well in the greater context of the CTC solution. So I think to put it in um, Yadkinese, I'm from a, a little town here called Yadkinville uh, in North Carolina, very tiny little town, um, pretty country. And around these parts, they might say something like this, well, that guy's barking up the right tree. And I think that's true. I think these guys are uh, completely barking up the right tree tree with the creation-time-coordinates solution. And so we're going to continue to expand on that. Okay, so that's the biblical evidence. There seems to be biblical warrant for saying that the cosmos must be youthful. So what about a quick look at our particular galaxy? Now, the authors spend quite a bit of time here, and that's uh, both because their argument requires some development um, and because it requires some some nuance, okay? So again, I'm going to encourage you to go read the paper to get the most out of it, but I'm going to give you a pretty detailed summary of what it is that the authors discuss in this section. Well, they argue from what they call the paucity of supernova remnants. Now, that word paucity is just simply another way of saying scarcity. The scarcity of supernova remnants, and specifically they're talking about within our galaxy, the Milky Way. Now, you may already know this, but in case you don't, a supernova is um, an exploded or exploding, technically, star. Now, let me give you the author's definition of a supernova remnant. Quote, a supernova remnant, SNR, is the expanding cloud-like structure resulting from a supernova explosion. It is composed of stellar material from the explosion itself plus material from the surrounding interstellar, interstellar medium, ISM, swept up by the advancing supersonic shock front. There are three main phases in SNR history, and they continue on. Close, We'll close out that quote. Okay, so what we're going to do is mention briefly the first few uh, phases and then give you some, uh, some observations. So the first phase in the life of a supernova remnant or an SNR is the free expansion phase. The free expansion phase. So um, in the case of a type... 1a supernova, for example, um, the expansion velocity in this phase, the first phase, the free expansion phase, is roughly 8,500 kilometers per second. For typical values, uh, elapsed time is usually around a few centuries, and the SNR diameter can be about 5 to 10 light years. So that's phase 1 of a supernova remnant. Uh, Expansion velocity is about 8,500 kilometers per second. Elapsed time is usually around a few centuries, and the diameter can be 5 to 10 light years. All right, from there, we move on to the sedov taylor phase. The sedov taylor phase. Now, the authors give a concise summary, but it's a lengthy quote, so I'm going to go ahead and give it to you here. Quote, the second phase, known as the Sedov Taylor phase, begins after a reverse shock toward the end of the first phase, has traveled inward and heated the ejected stellar gas to high temperature, and has established a more or less uniform pressure inside the SNR. The temperature inside the SNR is so high that all the atoms are ionized, and therefore they do not radiate energy away by recombination of the electrons with the ions. Hence, energy losses by radiation are very small, and the subsequent pressure-driven expansion phase may be regarded as adiabatic, um, which just simply means that no heat enters or leaves. The cooling of the gas inside the SNR is then due solely to its expansion. From simple theoretical considerations, this adiabatic expansion phase ought to end when the temperature in the outer portions of the SNR drops below 106 Kelvin. At this critical temperature, the ionized atoms begin to capture free electrons and lose energy by radiation. The radiative energy loss results in rapid cooling of the outer shell of the SNR, and a transition to a third phase of its history. For typical ISM, remember that's interstellar medium, densities, the set-off phase is estimated to last on the order of 100,000 years. Close quote. Okay, we then have, finally, the snowplow or radiative phase. So the authors say, quote, that the characteristics and behavior of the third phase, known as the snowplow snowplow phase, has been obtained almost entirely from theoretical considerations and numerical modeling. See, for example, uh, Blondin et al. writing in 1998, and they reference that in their paper, as opposed to observation, close quote. Now, immediately, this is something that's, hopefully, it's caused you to pause. Uh, anytime that we have something that um, we should be able to observe, and the only way we can know anything about it is by theoretical modeling, because we haven't really observed it um, in our vicinity, is striking. So, basically, in this phase, the SNR has become a slow-moving high-density cooler shell expanding into the ISM. Their calculations suggest that this phase could last for up to a, get this, million years. However, the authors point out that it's a profound puzzle why we do not observe many thousands of them in our galaxy if the age of our galaxy truly exceeds a few hundred thousand years. Indeed, they say one is hard pressed—excuse me, hard pressed—to find even one good example of a radiative phase SNR reported in the astronomy literature. So this is certainly um, interesting. Basically, we're expecting to see lots of these things if we have a universe that is millions of years old, and we're hard pressed to find one in the astronomy literature available uh, to the entire world so this is interesting okay Um, so to kind of uh, give some thoughts on that here are some up-to-date and striking uh, observations or we might say um, observations or lack thereof so first of all we expect to be able to observe about twenty two hundred and fifty six that's two thousand two hundred and fifty six SNRs, if our galaxy exceeds the set-off Taylor stage lifetime, 2,256. The actual observed number is 200. 200. Here's another striking observation. There are still zero, absolutely zero, snowplow phase that's remember the radiative phase the final phase zero observed snowplow phase snrs in our galaxy our neighboring galaxy the uh lmc or the large magellanic cloud should have 480 snrs if it were truly in excess of the set off taylor lifetime as of today it has 47 The authors also point out the uh, small Magellanic Cloud and um, M33 as well. These are galaxies that also ought to have a large number of radiative phase SNRs, but none have been observed. Now, let me give you the conclusion written directly by the authors. Quote, Therefore, the small number of SNRs in our own galaxy as well as those close enough for radio, infrared, optical, and x-ray telescopes to image and count the individual SNRs is a significant indicator that the elapsed history of our own Milky Way galaxy and those uh, and of those nearby is short, merely a few thousand years instead of the billions of years that these secularists assume. These SNR observations argue further, That our CTC solution to the distant starlight problem also holds for the stars within our own galaxy. In other words, the observations lend support to the inference that God created the stars in our galaxy, very close to Earth's Day 4 light cone, just as he did for the rest of the cosmos. In that case, the light we are receiving from the stars throughout our own galaxy is reporting a history of close to 6,000 years since the stars were created, despite the fact that many of these stars are as far as 75,000 light years away. Close quote. All right, now I want to, first of all, let's take a minute to think about that. I mean, that's very striking. Uh, These are some interesting conclusions, if they hold water, uh, that that might cause a problem for old age timescales. And I'm sure that they have... Uh, I don't have anything mentioned here, but I'm sure they have some sort of rescuing device for this. I, I don't know what that is. I have not looked at, at the literature on that, um, uh, 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 but this is a paper written by three pretty uh, credentialed scientists. I'd like to think they're accurately reporting the information here, um, and uh, I have every reason to trust that what they're saying is true. Now with that, um, let me provide a little bit of caution. Danny Faulkner in 2017, and uh, some of you guys know, I I very highly respect uh, Dr. Danny Faulkner. I think he's a level-headed voice in the creation astronomy world. Um, He seems to be the least dogmatic in the sense that he'll uh, he's very cautious before jumping to conclusions even before offering solutions to the starlight issue uh, of his own he does have one that's pretty vague right now but I think he he mostly likes to just you know comment on the others and and, and just refine uh, where he can. So he's a pretty balanced voice. Now he argues that recent creationists should be careful using SNRs as indicators of age since some SNRs would seem to give legitimately um, uh, older ages, um, older than 6,000 or even 7,000 years um, at least. Now, the authors do heed this advice, and again, his 2017 paper on the issue is pretty good and instructive. Uh, For full context, I'd highly recommend that you go find that and read that. I think it was submitted to the Answers Research Journal. Uh, The authors heed this advice, and they mention it, um, and they instead choose to argue on the scarcity of SNRs versus the reading out of SNR data. So this is two very different arguments, and Uh, If you read the 2017 paper by Faulkner, you will notice a bit of criticism of Paul Davies, uh, who was kind of one of the first uh, in the creation literature to uh, expound upon the SNR uh, issue. Um, And he came to some conclusions that were somewhat inaccurate based on the factor of visibility uh, that they needed to factor in back at that time. Now, the authors uh, of the present paper here go into detail and correct for that in, um, in this analysis. So the numbers that I just gave you have already been corrected for the um, for the mistakes that were made in the 1994 paper, which is what both Faulkner and uh, these authors point out um, in their respective papers. So uh, that's why I said that these numbers were up to date. They're up to date numbers and nevertheless still striking. And uh, you'll find that some of the conclusions from Davies' original paper in 1994 uh, indeed hold today. The numbers are a little different because of advanced, more advanced technology, but the conclusions are still valid. So I highly encourage you to check that out. Okay, the authors also take time to mention the young, distant cosmos, but they really only mention one argument, uh, and they very briefly mention another one. Um, So, basically, they defer to the well-known creationist argument from the existence of blue stars. Um, And here it is in a nutshell. Basically, the argument maintains that uh, blue Type O main sequence stars burn so much fuel Uh, In other words, they have a luminosity that often exceeds one million times that of our sun, resulting in extremely high core temperatures, that none should exist if the universe is truly 14 billion years old. It's that simple. Uh, Yet we find them all over the visible cosmos, including 20,000 of them in our own galaxy. Um... So the authors make a brief point of that, and they also say that uh, Lyle, in his 2010 paper uh, on the um asc dealt with some more of these uh, age indicators for a young distant cosmos so they redirect the paper to or the reader rather to his um initial paper uh on that and i will actually have the link in the show notes for you so that you can check it out because remember the authors are just building on to lyle's model they are reformulating lyle's model um, making room for some of the ambiguities Uh, that uh, they feel, and that a lot of people feel, um, Lyle's model had. All right, let's do some discussion. Uh, Basically, in this section of the paper, the authors compare the CTC solution to, uh, the other well-known, uh, solutions. Uh, so the authors have already mentioned, of course, that we've got the, kind of the secular Big Bang model. And for the purposes of this paper, again, it was submitted to a recent creationist journal. So, um, we, there is a direct, uh, correlation for the purposes of argument in this paper between Big Bang cosmology and, um, secularism. Um, uh, because, that's what it was developed through. Um, I've I realized there are Christians today who hold the Big Bang. There are Christians today who hold the Big Bang who listen to this podcast. I'm, you know, I'm not criticizing you right at this moment. I'm just saying that if you're noticing a bit of a dichotomy here, it's there, uh, but it's there legitimately. This is a recent creationist paper. It's arguing for recent creation, and the Big Bang model was developed. Um, not in a Christian context. In fact, many of you know that the Big Bang was resisted because of the potential implications it could have, um, in uh, in a Christian uh, type of worldview. Um, so, anyway, that's a that's a side discussion. But I just wanted you to know that if you're feeling that dichotomy, if you're a Christian who affirms the Big Bang, I'm sorry, this paper is just not directed towards you in that sense. Um, but I still think it's important that you listen because I want you to understand the young age view. If you criticize, um, the young age view, you need to understand it. Let me get a witness. All right. Uh, and all God's people said, amen. Uh, and similarly, if you're a young age creationist and you want to, uh, critique the old age view, you need to understand it. So I think that's something that we need to um to to really take hold of. Uh make facts matter again. <laughs> um anyway, okay, off on a tangent. All right. So let's talk then about the C T C solution versus um conventional old age cosmologies. Then we're gonna talk about it versus Humphrey's cosmology, which is the Young Earth Old Universe cosmology uh, via time dilation mechanisms. And then also we're going to compare it to the uh, CTC solution um, or the CTC solution versus Lyle's Anisotropic Synchrony Convention or ASC model. So first, the CTC versus conventional old age cosmologies. The authors state, quote, Our solution is consistent with well-established scientific theories, such as the theory of special relativity. It invokes neither new physics nor miracles, except for the miracle of creation itself. Close quote. Now, I love this. This statement, to me, is really strong. And here's why. Everyone must deal with the miracle of creation. Thinkers throughout the centuries have dealt with this particular question. Why is there something rather than nothing? Why is there something rather than nothing? Of course, if you're familiar with philosophical arguments, um, Leibniz's uh, uh, contingency argument deals with this. Why is there something rather than Than nothing. Everybody's got to deal with this. So all we need is the miracle of creation itself. Now, of course, we argue that uh, uh, under Christian uh, conditions, a Christian view of looking at the world, we can make perfect sense of the beginning of the universe. But this is a serious difficulty on naturalism. So I think it's just interesting um, how little this model bucks up against the um, observational uh, science found in even secular um, views um, of science. Uh, To that end, it is also consistent with Hubble's law. In other words, the expansion of space, the authors take care to mention this, um, is perfectly consistent with their model. Now, I, for one, and I have a, a few buddies who uh, who have reached out to, and one in particular I've talked to about this, who's who's curious about that. Well, how does that work? Um, so I, I don't know. The authors don't author offer that, offer any kind of theory for the expansion of space within this, but it's totally consistent with um, you know redshifted galaxies and stars and so forth. So. There's no problem there, um, and, and I'll mention this again probably in a moment, but but this is a good time to mention that this view is just a solution for the distant starlight issue. Um, it is completely open uh, to be to have this integrated into a wider creationist cosmology. Certainly, this is the beginnings of a good creationist cosmology, but it's not necessarily one in totality. Um, so I think this would be, um, I mean, you could call it a cosmology, but um, properly speaking, it could be integrated into a larger um, cosmological idea, uh, and this just merely be one facet of that. So um, I, for one, look forward to see w- what people do with this. Um, but now let me give you a couple sharp differences between CTC and conventional old age cosmologies. Now, some of these should be obvious if you listen to this point, especially if you listen to last week's episode. But let's just spell it out very, very clearly for you. First of all, the first sharp difference is that all stars have only accumulated thousands of years since they came into existence, regardless of their distance from Earth. Uh, This is something that has nothing to do with just being observer-specific, has nothing to do with where you're looking at things from, has nothing to do with arbitrary values or anything like that. This is an objective fact on this earth, view, which is, of course, also an integrated view of scripture as well. On this view in its, entirely all, all, in its entirety, all stars have only accumulated thousands of years since they came into existence. And we talked a little bit with a case study last week about how we can see what the creation time coordinate of a star would be. Um... The creation time coordinate is simply the uh, time from the beginning of the stars' creation on day four uh, until now, plus three days. So, it's the beginning. Uh, the, the The CTC, properly speaking, is the time the age it is now uh, speaking from the actual age of creation, which of course the authors had to make an assumption on around 4,000 years or so. Um, And so anyway, we we talked about that in the last paper. So all stars have only accumulated thousands of years, regardless of their distance from earth. It doesn't matter how many light years away they are. All stars are only thousands of years old. And furthermore, extending on that, the light from those stars uh, reaches earth that we can see them um, near instantaneously. Um, so there's that. Okay. The other is the rejection of the cosmological principle. Quote, this principle is acknowledged by most, most, uh, excuse me, cosmologists, even if grudgingly as an un proven assumption. Fundamentally, it is rooted in the presupposition that the universe is not designed and therefore ought not have any privileged location such as a center. By contrast, the Bible clearly teaches that God designed the universe and that the earth itself is indeed a special place. Close quote. Now, of course, the Bible doesn't tell us that uh, that the universe is at or or excuse me, that the earth is at the center of the universe. But if you're going to make an assumption, starting from the biblical view, it is certainly a valid assumption that the earth is at the center. Of course, that's a good place to transition into... The CTC solution versus Russell Humphrey's uh, time dilation cosmology, because he also makes that assumption. Indeed, he believes that um, essentially there was a watery mass that God used, and everything, uh, space and everything as we know it was created out from there. And so he also makes the assumption in his model that the Earth is at the center, or at least has an implication of it. Um, So I have distilled um, his model. The authors, by the way, I'm going to just give them kudos here. The authors gave a wonderfully laid out explanation of this, but it would have taken me forever to read. So I summarized it into six steps, and I'm just going to read verbatim, if it's okay with you, my summary um, that I wrote down. I'm just going to read that exactly. I tried to clear up some confusion, put it in even more lay terms, um, but in a way that it would make sense sense um and uh, and still be robust uh, and correct so um i'm going to give you that and then i'll just encourage you to go check out their full summary on the humphrey's time dilation cosmology because i definitely think it is uh, a good one so first humphrey's posits water Beyond the physical cosmos, in the form of ice crystals with a mass of 20 times greater than the total mass of all galaxies in the visible cosmos. Two, this creates a negative gravitational potential in the cosmos with values around negative c squared divided by two, the value at which Humphreys asserts that all physical processes stop. Three, On Humphrey's model, God's creation of the stars took place in such a way that the Earth, and eventually the rest of the cosmos, was subjected to a region of timelessness behind the front of star formation. 4. However, stars, according to Humphreys, could have experienced billions of years of time before entering the timeless zone. Thus, all physical processes on Earth were halted, while physical processes in the cosmos were continuing. 5. Next, God steadily increases tension in the fabric of space, causing gravitational potential to rise at the edge of the cosmos and causing the boundary of timelessness to race inward toward Earth at the speed of light. When time resumes on Earth, the sky is ablaze with light from the sun and stars, and it is still day four. the light the earth receives is the light the stars uh, is the light the stars gave off almost immediately after they emerged from the timeless zone. Number six note that on this model it is a subjective choice as to how much time that the stars experienced before entering the timeless zone. Uh, Humphreys uses this to dial in time for galaxies to spiral up, uh, etc but he could just as well choose a very small amount of time. If he were to do so, the result would be uh, virtually identical to the CTC solution's result. Uh, That is, light from all the stars and galaxies arrive at Earth on creation day four, and subsequent stellar history unfolds as if in real time. So hopefully you see that, where the differences are. Now there might be some way, I was talking to a buddy of mine who who affirms, or at least who used to affirm this model, and um, he's interested to see if there's maybe some kind of integration that could happen, because Humphreys also has uh, a lot of explanatory uh, power in his model for different things, Um, I mean, uh, all the way from the magnetic field of uh, 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 of stars, which he accurately predicted, um, to possible explanations for accelerated decay during the flood. I mean, there are all kinds of um, uh, things that Humphrey's model is able to explain. So, um, I- I'm not, I'm not personally convinced that it's the most parsimonious uh, starlight suggestion, but. I like that it has explanatory power in other areas, and so perhaps some kind of integration uh, of this would be great. Now, the authors in the, in the paper do later state that their, this model would not be affected by significant time dilation effects, even though they don't account for it in this paper. So that's interesting. So I think there, there is a way um, that the two could possibly be worked out uh, together. Okay, let's look at the CTC solution versus Lyle's model, uh, the ASC model, which of course this solution is built on. Um, So, uh, quote, in in its essence, our solution is a reformulation of Lyle's solution, Newton 2001 and Lyle 2010, but ours spell out uh, clearly the required initial conditions without which Lyle's solution is at best ambiguous, if not incomplete. While Lyle does not make, or excuse me, while Lyle does make a distinction between the ASC convention and his ASC model, thus recognizing that the convention alone is insufficient, at the same time he does not adequately delineate the initial conditions associated with his model. Discussion of the initial conditions should have stressed the unique role of the Earth in relation to the stars. Lyle neglects to address this crucial issue. Close quote. So, um, CTC, as a convention uh, proposed by these authors, actually replaces the ASC. Uh, and We talked about this already, but again, the ASC is observer-specific, and therefore it is subjective. Yes, Lyle does make the case that the Bible um, uses uh, the ASC, But his motivation for that claim is a bit odd. Um, He claims that basically the ASC uh, is what ancient cultures used because they were unsophisticated. And so that they only thought in those one-way terms. Um, It may be true, but it's kind of a weak justification. I'm not necessarily sure that you could prove it. Um, So... I don't know. I I can't comment much further on that. But the CTC itself is actually drawn directly from uh, Scripture. And so remember, the ASC is observer-specific and it's subjective, but on the CTC, the synchrony convention is actually divinely prescribed and results in an objective definition of simultaneity. And I would encourage you to understand more about that, to read the special relativity primer that the authors give at the end of this paper. We just don't have the space to discuss it here. Okay, now Lyle admits that the ASC convention itself is not falsifiable, since it makes no testable predictions. However, he claims that his ASC model does make testable predictions and that it is falsifiable, but he does not spell those out. Perhaps he plans to do this later, I don't know, but he never spells it out. Um, th- but the CTC solution, creation-time coordinate solution, actually provides the special conditions necessary and obviates uh, an otherwise ambiguous suggestion. Now, very importantly, the authors note that, quote, if uh, if their interpretation of Lyle's model is correct, then his idea is essentially equivalent um, to uh, what we're proposing. The main differences are in the way the two solutions are motivated and presented. So you understand that. If Lyle is correct, uh, the ideas are basically equivalent, uh, but the differences are in the motivation and the presentation of the solution. Okay, so that encompasses the discussion section. Real quick, and we're almost done uh, for today, but real quick, let's talk about some potential objections to the CTC uh, before uh, wrapping up for uh, today, and this little two part mini series on distant starlight and creation time coordinates. The first potential objection is this Does the ASC and CTC merely um, uh, define the problem away? Now, the authors note that um, fundamentally it's actually the special conditions that resolve the starlight problem, it's not the convention. So, don't fall into that trap don't don't think that it's just the convention by which we are uh, that we're using in order to understand our relationship to starlight it's not just the convention Uh, the convention plays a part but it's actually the special conditions that resolve the starlight issue it's not the convention um Now, these two things are often conflated by those referring to the Anisotropic Synchrony Convention, um, but creation time coordinates makes this particular distinction quite clear. How about the claim that the ASC and the CTC, uh, it's just an awkward convention. Well, first of all, it's kind of a logical fallacy if the arguer if the arguer is is suggesting that it must be false because of Occam's razor. um, Yeah, I mean, there are times certainly when that's true, but it would be a logical fallacy to say that it must be false because of that. Something being complicated does not necessarily mean that it is false. Um, Also, the claim that this might be an awkward suggestion um, is subjective. Uh, In fact, the authors give the illustration of time zones in an airport. Here's what they say, quote, For example, an airplane's takeoff and landing times are typically reported with respect to local time zones. While this may be an awkward convention for computing travel time, it is exactly the convention needed to make hotel and car reservations at the travel destination. Close quote. Okay, so, you can clearly see how just because something might be complicated in one context, it's actually what another context um, virtually requires in order to make sense. Now, does the asymmetric speed of light, this is the third potential objection, uh, Uh, Does the asymmetric light speed imply that space itself is anisotropic? Um, No. The one-way speed of light is not a property of space. That's important. um, But a direct consequence of the synchrony convention. Now, on the anisotropic synchrony convention, uh, it is, again, observer-specific. But on the CTC, the observer is replaced with Earth. By definition. Uh, A third potential question um, How can light travel faster than C? Uh, The authors give this response. Quote This question is related to the one above and has the same answer. The one way speed of light is not a physical quantity. On the other hand, the round trip speed of light is a physical quantity and is always C, regardless of the synchrony convention one chooses. Close quote. How about this one? Are the CTCs physically realizable coordinates? Quote, CTCs are well-defined time coordinates representing the elapsed time since creation, Genesis 1-1, at each point of the firmament within the rest reference frame of the firmament. Close quote. So this is similar to understanding um, uh, the Big Bang's co-moving time coordinates. It's 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 a very similar concept. Now of course they're not endorsing them. They're not endorsing anything about the Big Bang uh, in this paper. But they're simply drawing a creationist application or a creationist understanding of the same idea. It has to do with the uh, the objects coordinates in space with respect to a rest reference frame and a well-known point in time so any objection by extension that one would level against the methodology used to arrive at the ctc that same exact objection would apply to the big bang's co-moving time coordinates it's the same exact kind of thing um and just to clear that up, the authors state explicitly that in both cases, the time coordinate is defined as the elapsed time at a given location with respect to a well-known reference frame and a well-known initial event. So we spelled that out for you. Does the existence, question number six, of a special reference frame, as suggested by the CTC convention, conflict with special relativity? The short answer is no. No. <laughs> Uh, the elaboration relies on a detailed thought experiment ran by the authors um, in objection number five. So I'm just going to ask you to defer to the paper to see more. And again, you can find the paper there in the show notes. And then the final potential objection is Humphrey's 2017 argument that scripture points to an old cosmos. Uh, so this is not so much a objection directly to the CTC model. But most justification for this claim is derived from poetic and prophetic literature. Uh, which to me, I mean, they're hardly meant to give specific details about the age of the cosmos. So, I mean, this is just a real difficult argument to go through. Uh, The authors find his arguments unsatisfying. I've not had much opportunity to look into the claims themselves, um, but I'm pretty skeptical to say the least, especially after what we looked at earlier. I think there's good evidence that the Bible indeed explicitly teaches a young age for the cosmos in general. All right. So we've reached the end. Uh, That is basically it. I am going to read a couple things here in conclusion before we finally close out. But uh, before I do that, I just, you know, again, I want to say that I'm really impressed uh, with this model. I think it's very, um, it's very much a step forward in the creationist uh, literature. I hope folks adopt it. Um, I I hope that uh, that. it faces little difficulty as it goes through the fires of you know, peer review and things like that. Uh, certainly, there are plenty of uh, creationist uh, astronomical writers who will come out and, 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 and call it out if it's no good. Um, but I'm encouraged. I really think that this is, is, is going to um, make room for growth in the creation astronomy community. So I'm really excited about it. Let me give you a couple closing quotes from the authors. In its essence, our solution, based on the notion of creation time coordinates, is similar to Lyell's anisotropic synchrony convention model. Our CTC based solutions, explicit initial conditions, adds clarity and points to the same falsifiable predictions, namely that the cosmos should appear young and that the first light from all stars, near and far, appeared on earth on day four. We showed that these predictions are supported by both scripture and by observations. The proposed solution does not constitute a complete cosmology and relies on a sparse set of assumptions, which makes it suitable for incorporation into a more comprehensive cosmological theory. Furthermore, the solution does not attempt to explain how creation itself might have happened. Uh, We are persuaded from the biblical text that the creation of the cosmos was supernatural, a result of God's spoken word, Psalm 33, 6, and 9. Nevertheless, the fact that we can see distant stars today is clearly within the realm of the natural. The solution we present attempts to explain how our ability to see distant stars can be consistent with a young creation based on the laws of nature as we understand them today. Close quote. Thank you for joining me for these past uh, couple weeks. What an exciting, exciting topic. I love talking about this stuff. Uh, not sure what next week holds quite yet, uh, but I'm uh, starting to look to the notes uh, in the next couple days and see what we're going to be able to pull out for you next week and, uh, and um, go from there. All right. Hey, why don't we say a word of prayer? Dear Heavenly Father, we love you and want to say thank you for the wonderful new year you've given us so far. Thank you for the opportunity to serve and the opportunity also to share, Lord, as we um, study, uh, to show ourselves approved unto God as workmen that need not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. And I'm so thankful that we can start there and understand uh, scientifically about your natural world with that fundamental point. Uh, that you are the creator of the heavens and the earth, and you've already um, told us uh, as much as you have felt that you needed us to know uh, through special revelation. And so we thank you for the ability to speculate uh, past that uh, within the you know bounds that you give us in Scripture. So, Father, we're thankful that you allow us to take dominion over this earth and to, to, to study it and uh, to, to study also the heavens, Lord. We're thankful for everything that you do and every good blessing that we understand comes from you, Father. In Jesus' name, amen okie doke well hey listen I hope your family is having a happy new year so far hope you continue to have a happy new year please don't forget go to com slash starlight download and you can go ahead and get your five step response to the distant starlight issue it's not technical it's very it's very quick it's just a small little handout that gives you a quick five step process for how to um, navigate conversations around the distant starlight issue and I think you're really going to Um, enjoy that and learn a lot from it. Alright, so thank you so much. We'll see you next week. Thanks. Bye-bye.